Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. This is John Perrine, your host. We are on episode three of our study of the Song of Songs, Sex and the Search for Intimacy. So this episode, we're going to move really intentionally into the text. There's some really rich themes, particularly when we hit chapter three, that contains this almost story-like surrealist dream that the woman has it's going to hold one of the key insights i think into why love so often goes wrong so this episode we're going to look at the terrors of the night those fears that push us away from the ones who are attempting to draw us towards them Why is it that we so often get scared in love? Why is it that so many of us so desperately want to be loved and yet find it so incredibly difficult to maintain close bonds with others? I think this episode and what chapter three of the Song of Songs is going to offer us is a song that sings direction and vision for where our love can go in light of those terrors we face in the night. Let's get started. So in 2019, Netflix did it again. Uh, They captured gold in their Oscar-winning and Oscar-nominated movie by Noah Baumbach called Marriage Story. The irony of Marriage Story, if you had a chance to watch it, is that the movie depicts not a marriage, but a divorce. In fact, that's somewhat of the commentary of the movie on marriage itself as an institution. Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson begin in relationship, and yet painfully, painfully, you watch as in their attempts to reach towards each other, there almost seems to be this growing chasm of a divide. The more one of them strains in the direction of the other, the more you see their own inwardness, their selfishness, their struggle to open up and trust each other grow and grow and grow. They eventually try to divorce amicably, But then one hires a lawyer, so the other does the same. Through their back and forth, their son is increasingly caught in the crosshairs in the state of tug of war. And as the viewer, you're struck how both of them are so wrong, even as both of them have tried so hard to be right in this relationship. There's this scene in the movie where all the pent-up emotion of the divorce bursts over where she, Scarlett Johansson, declares, I didn't belong to myself. I didn't know who I was when I was with you. I was just sort of melded into who you forced me to be. And he, Adam Driver, responds, You and I both know you chose this life. You wanted it until you didn't. Marriage Story captures this kind of raw fusion and power that comes almost like an atomic bomb when a marriage explodes outward and that ends in every story of divorce. The mutually assured destruction is going to require that no one and nothing leaves unmarked or unscathed. All will be bruised, the children most of all. And yet, yet what I think was so powerful about that movie, if you had a chance to see it, is that you heartbreakingly see, you see the sincerity, you see the potential, you see the glimmers of hope that began at the start of the marriage, and you feel the agonizing humanness and potential in every scene that you yourself could play or maybe have played similar roles in your own life. We've so far in this study of the Song of Songs been speaking rather positively about love. If you've been tracking with this, and I I realize we're in quite dense theological territory right now, But in a theology of sex, I've been making the argument that from chapter one of the Song of Songs, you discover the draw of desire. That actually desire is pointing us in sex to the deep longing each of us have for intimacy. And when we really ponder intimacy, when we ponder the potential of intimacy, the need each of us have for intimacy, what we actually find there. So what theologians across the history of the church have always argued is actually our need for God. That is what the potential of sex is pointing us to. The union of two people into one flesh is actually what's taking place in the deepest existential level of our need for salvation in God. That's a big, sweeping 
statement. And I realize there's a lot to continue to unpack there. But that's why last episode, episode two, we argued that desire in the Song of Songs leads us to a reflection on a theology of beauty. That beauty actually is the mechanism that draws us, draws us often through sexual allure, certainly, but on a far deeper level. The true beauty, as we begin to glimpse it in each other, is what's drawing us not only into deeper intimacy, deeper relationship, deeper union with one another, but ultimately, again, is drawing us back to God. You start to see almost this gravitational pull in love, and this is how the theologians often talk about it. If God is love, then what's taking place on a human plane, whenever we experience love, whenever we're feeling love, is that we're somehow in our deep soul level feeling the shifting tides of God, beckoning us in towards God's self, beckoning us through our loves, through our relationships, through our sexualities, through our marriages, back towards union with our creator himself. That's what sex and intimacy and love is really beckoning us towards. And yet, if we've been talking positively so far, if so far in the Song of Songs we've really seen the beauty of this dance between lover and beloved as they've circled each other, as they've beckoned to each other, as they've teased out this deep desire of the heart, as they've affirmed and acknowledged the beauty that they see in each other as part of the necessary power of the love that they're sharing. Well, this episode, as we turn to the Song of Songs chapter 3, we're going to find this fascinating scene. I never knew about it before, sitting down to really study the Song of Songs. This fascinating scene is going to depict to us what happens when love falls apart. Because surely if desire and beauty are part of what's drawing us in towards God, each of us know there must be then some equivalent when it comes to desire and to beauty that doesn't draw us but instead repulses us, pushes us back from God, away from intimacy, away from union with each other, and ultimately away from that connection with God. What we're going to find in this episode, to just give it to you up front, is that it's fear. Fear is the ultimate force that pushes us away from God. And yet, I think a more apt image, because the Song of Songs is all about those poetic images, it's going to be terror in the night that captures what's taking place in a movie like Marriage Story when love breaks down. So, let's turn to Song of Songs chapter 3. And I really want to spend some time in the text here. We're going to do a brief maneuver after Song of Songs chapter 3 verses 1 to 5 over to chapter 5. There's this really fascinating parallel that's going to take place a little bit later in the songs that's going to unpack even more insight Song of Songs 3 and then we'll conclude the chapter before the episode ends. But in order to get there, let's begin with chapter 3 verse 1. Here's what it's going to say. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. Okay, this is a really interesting verse because we've clearly entered into a new song, close of chapter two, had us once again connected in this intimacy and delight of the lover and the beloved. And now for the first time, we experience this tension where the lover, it would seem as we'll discover to be the woman who's speaking at this point, is on her bed and she goes to seek the one her soul loves, the beloved, and she, though she seeks him, she cannot find him. What is taking place in this strange, enigmatic opening to the song? Well, it's going to keep unpacking as we go. But the first thing to note is that a lot of scholars wonder, because of parallels we'll soon see in chapter 5, if what's about to be described is not necessarily a, meant to be understood as a literal historical event. This is where some Bible scholars with the Song of Songs can get a little tripped up. I, we're not sure if this is actually trying to describe one night in the woman's life who somehow is writing this down, but instead, it's probable, perhaps even possibly likely, that the woman is about to describe to us a dream that she's having. This is some of the poetic, embedded, highly figurative language that the Hebrew is doing that on her bed by night she's seeking, she's longing for, or she's now dreaming that she went to look for her beloved, and though she looks for him, she cannot find him. I'm drawn here to just pause and note the context 
that we're going to find all of the tension, the context that we're going to find the terrors, is actually very specifically the night. In the night, we are quite literally disoriented. If you've ever gone to a hotel, stayed over at a friend's house, and had that terrible moment where you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't know where you are. Your body has literally gone into this vulnerable state of existence. In fact, I just read this book on sleep, the science of sleep. It was fascinating. I think it was by Matthew West, Why We Sleep was the title of it. And yet he was highlighting that the body physiologically goes through the REM sleep to a point where in the first couple hours of your sleep, you tend to technically be aware of your surroundings. So if someone were to play music, uh, they've done strange memory cues where they'll hold a flashcard above someone who's just entered into that light phase of sleep. They'll wake them up. They'll ask them what was on the flashcard. The person will be able to remember. Fascinating stuff like that. But after two hours or so, you begin to move into REM sleep. And what West was describing as a sleep scientist is that in REM sleep, your body quite literally shuts down. So the idea is that to get to REM sleep, your brain it needs to be freed. It sort of has the release lever lifted, if you will, on the control mechanisms that normally keep you focused, alert, and aware of your senses. And instead, your brain in REM sleep goes into a dream state, which as we all know, and as Christopher Nolan so vividly demonstrated in the film Inception, can really go anywhere. The possibilities are limitless when we are in REM sleep. And yet, in order for your brain to go fully nuclear, explosive, creative, just picturing anything that comes to mind, your brain has to quite literally shut down your body so that you don't start reacting to whatever it is you're dreaming. So if you've ever noticed yourself wake up with that kick mechanism that feels so jarring, the point is not so much that you did wake up with a movement of your leg or a startle or anything like that. The point is that normally, even though you dream quite vivid things, your body should not be moving. It is entirely vulnerable. So my point in reflecting on sleep science, taking you into that deep uh, digression, is to highlight that in the night, the night is such a powerful image for what takes place with fear in relationships because in the night, our bodies are vulnerable and our souls quite often are afraid. If part of what sleep is doing is totally shutting down your body, then the other vivid experience that I'm sure you've had waking up in the middle of the night is suddenly becoming far more paranoid and afraid than you typically are. I just recently, a couple weeks ago, had this experience yet again, and I, I'm really not a hypersecurity type person. I, I really am not even distraught if I happen to forget to lock the door at night. I, for the most part, just live a very stable sense of security whenever I'm in my home. But the other night I woke up and suddenly I remembered that I hadn't locked the front door. And immediately, immediately my brain entered this paranoid state where I couldn't stop thinking about the possibility. Is there someone here in the house? Would I hear them? If they were here in the house. And what I think is interesting then about this image that the woman opens with on her bed by night she goes to seek the one whom her soul loves. She seeks him, but she cannot find him. That's verse one. What we're seeing is that the night, already by being the context for this opening scene, unlike earlier chapters where everything is taking place out in the day, where all of the intimacy and love and beauty and desire are happening in the day, so often our relationships crash when we wake up in the middle of the night. Terror comes in the night. So that would be my first point to make. Terror is happening in the night when it comes to our relationships. This is where the passage goes. In verse 2, the woman says, I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. So if you're tracking with the scene, she wakes up on her bed. She goes to seek the one her soul loves. She seeks him, but finds him not. Now she rises and goes out into the city. In fact, now she's in the streets and in the squares. And as she's seeking him who her soul loves, she's going to seek everywhere, looking high and low, and yet cannot seem to find him. 
You may think I'm moving too slowly or making too big of a deal about this scene, and yet from a thematic standpoint in the Song of Songs, this is really important. It's really interesting. We're actually going to see it's so important. It will come up again in chapter 5. The woman, in the disorientation of the night, out of the desperation to reconnect to her lover, is going to do something that in the ancient world would have been crazy. She starts to wander around the city looking for her beloved at night. Now, I think this image lands even in today's present context. In fact, I don't care where you live. I love cities. I've lived in the city for many years, was in downtown Chicago, and absolutely loved the experience, never had any problems there. And yet, it doesn't matter if you live in a city, if you live in a village, even if you live out in the countryside, when it's the night, it is not safe to simply wander about. And this particularly would have been true in ancient cities. Ancient cities struggled deeply with the need to light the streets where people lived. In fact, in most ancient cities, there would be little if no light by which to move about or to see anything. And so in the ancient world, it was a common understanding that only dangerous and disreputable things took place in the night when it came to the city. Because under the cover of darkness, you could potentially thieve, you could potentially steal. If you were going to have an affair, it would take place at night because no one could see it. And so the book of Proverbs is going to describe all of these contrasts where righteousness and purity are taking place in the daylight, and all of the licentiousness and sin and the dangers of folly are going to be beckoning to you from the night. We're kind of disturbed to find that the woman is so desperate in this scene, the lover is so distraught over not having her beloved next to her that she's going to rise and start looking around the city at nighttime. Something is not right here. Clearly she doesn't find him. And at this point, we should be growing a little nervous. Is something going to happen to her as she's wandering about the city as a woman by herself at night? Thematically, I've got two terrors that have already been set up. The terror of the night, and then I I do think you have here the terror of the city. The city is not meant to be a pejorative terror in the sense that all cities are terrifying. That's not at all what I'm saying. I think the songs, though, if... They're using the context of the night as an image, a placeholder for the fear, the terror that's welling up in this relationship. The city is also another intentional context. Most scholars point out that Song of Songs is trying to show you when love is flourishing, it's taking place in the countryside, not because the countryside is somehow inherently superior, only good things happen in the countryside. In contrast, the city is where danger is taking place for any relationship, not because cities are inherently useless or worthwhile. The Bible has mixed feelings for the most part when it comes to the city. But instead, you can see in the imagery of the songs that there is this contrast between the isolation that allows intimacy to flourish in the countryside, in the gardens, in the beauty of nature, and there is this distraction and danger that is disorienting to a relationship when it is trying to search for the other in the city. I mean, Things are busy and bustling in the city. Things are dangerous, and particularly at night, we sense unease as the woman is looking around. Hopefully at this point I've built up just enough suspense that you're kind of wondering, where is this scene going to go? This is where we turn now to verse 3. We're going to discover in verse 3, it says, The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Then we seem to have a question from the woman. She says to them, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? And silence. That's the end of the verse. I'll read it again. The watchman found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? That's how verse 3 ends. And without any resolution to this question, to the watchman, we're going to find in verse 4, this is what the resolution to this scene commends. In verse 4 it says, Scarcely had I passed them, When I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. Now this is verse 5. The scene ends with the woman saying, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, 
that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, so maybe this feels a little anticlimactic after all of the hype I was building for this scene, but track with me, something really fascinating is taking place here. As the woman is looking around the city, she discovers or is confronted by the watchman, and scholars are kind of divided on whether or not the watchman find her intentionally, were the watchman looking for her, or do the watchman just stumble upon her in the middle of their evening routine? It was common in the ancient world because it was so dark in cities and because the cities were therefore so dangerous that the cities would post watch who were typically our modern equivalent to police as guards who would walk around the city, typically with lights, there to make sure that nothing dangerous happens. So it seems like the woman then asks these watchmen, have you seen him whom my soul loves? And either they have, I mean... That's what some scholars suggest, or more likely, they haven't seen this beloved, and the passage just sort of resolves itself with a little bit of choppiness, if we're being honest, in verse 4 by telling us that scarcely had she passed the watchman when she finds him. All is well. Her beloved is there, but we notice just a little bit of strain as we're told that she held him and would not let him go until she had brought him back to her mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. Clearly that is a strange verse on English ears. What's taking place typically is that there was an association in the ancient world that mothers often would be involved in helping to arrange their daughter's marriage. And there was some sense of sacred place in the ancient world where some scholars suggest, and again, I realize this is strange, but this is why we're here in the Song of Songs, to get some of the strangeness and let it disorient us just a little bit, that if your mother conceived you in her bedroom, that this bedroom was seen as fertile, as a sacred place of fertility where conception could take place. And so either the woman is saying symbolically that her mother's room is the safest, most secure place for the marital love, for the intimacy, for the covenanted bondedness that this couple longs to enjoy, or there is this sense of urgency in the woman that she needs to bring her beloved back to the place where fertility, where new life, where commitment to each other can flourish. And so as the passage ends, we hear her say, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Here's the same warning refrain that if you're reading through the Song of Songs, you notice comes back repeatedly, there is a sense in which the lover, for all of the passion and possibility of desire, for all of the potential for beauty to draw the beloved in and for her own beauty to be affirmed and known and seemed, the lover understands there is an inherent danger in love that is aroused or stirred before it's ready to flourish. So, what I think is happening here in a poetic sense is that we get the first scene of danger in the relationship between the lover and the beloved, where the terror, the fears of the night, we already sort of have talked about, where the danger, the terrors of the city, the sort of distractions, uh, those dark alleys and unknown crevices, combine with this final scene of sort of resolution, but, but not quite satisfactory resolution, a, a sort of desperation, a clinging, a, a grasping, a straining back into connectedness that's followed by this warning where the woman's saying, don't start love if you're not ready to handle the terror that just took place to me in the middle of the night. Now, all of that on its own would be really interesting if we didn't have Another passage that's going to have deeply similar, in fact, clearly parallel themes that it's unpacking, and yet it takes it even further in its warning about the terrors that take place in the night. So let me take you to this passage. I think they're meant to be connected. I think the songs are trying to weave together this sort of thematic flow that's really quite beautiful, even as it's a little bit haunting, much like a powerful film like Marriage Story is taking you through the struggles and strains of a relationship. 
So here in chapter five, we're going to get the second scene. It's really these two that form the most powerful scenes of threat to the relationship in the Song of Songs. Scholars have long wrestled with these scenes, what they're doing, what we're meant to interpret them as doing. And yet I think in their connections, you're going to notice the themes of chapter three be extended into the themes of chapter five. And the terrors of the night, followed by the terrors of the city, are going to extend into this final theme that is the terror of the watch. And I'm going to unpack that with you. It's actually, just to warn you, one of the more disturbing verses in the Song of Songs. It is a little little bit uncomfortable. And yet, Hopefully, as we sit with it, and I remind you that this is poetry, in its poetic imagery, it's trying to convey to us this warning that the songs is not hesitant to repeat a warning that love can, in fact, go awry. Here's Song of Songs, chapter 5, verses 2 to 8. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. Okay, so this is another one of those confusing passages in the Bible that if you don't move slowly through, you'll get totally overwhelmed. But notice, notice that we have some similar themes already emerging that are importantly connected to chapter three. First, the woman is yet again going to be sleeping. It's in the middle of the night that she will then be awoken. Second, as she has this interaction, we're going to find the similar phrase that she goes to seek her beloved and yet cannot find him. And thirdly, The watchmen who were introduced in chapter 3 are going to reappear, and yet this time, rather than these sort of ambiguous, neutral characters, the watchmen are going to be the villains of some kind. Something happens with these watchmen that we're going to talk quite a bit about. And then finally, the city is once again mentioned as this dangerous context where love is struggling to flourish. So what's going on here? Well, first, let me walk you through this a little bit slower. The woman was asleep, but we're told her heart was awake. Now, again, this is the actual verse where a lot of scholars think this probably is a dream. It's just a strange Hebrew expression. We've maybe lost the perfect context for what it means, yet in all likelihood, the woman is sleeping and is now either entering a dream or is picturing this scene. We're not meant to be overly literalistic, and I think especially because we get to this weird scene with the watchman. It's helpful to note this in all probability is meant to be read as a dream. But what happens in this dream? Well, we're told that the lover hears her beloved knocking. This is one of the themes of the Song of Songs, that the beloved is seeking, that even as the early church fathers would note, this is like Jesus who stands at the door and knocks. I mean, you can see all of the God-type imagery that's sitting here, and yet As he calls to her, open to me, my darling, my love, my dove, my perfect one, he gives this sort of urgency to the request that on a literal level can make sense, and yet, as you'll probably sense, could also have some sexual euphemism going on here. We're going to put God down and move back to just the actual physical human plane of sexuality and the beloved. So we're told, he says, my head, as in the top of my head, is wet with dew, as in I've been out in the elements, and Everything has gotten damp and cold, and my locks, my hair, are filled with the drops of the night. It's raining. Yet notice the night is there. The the night is so important to these scenes. In verse 3, we're told the woman now has this inner monologue of a struggle. The woman thinks to herself, I had put off my garment. How could I put it back on again? A lot of commentators note there's a bit of silliness here. I mean, clearly, if the beloved is knocking, clearly in the context of the songs, 
Surely the lover knows that her clothing is not an issue, whether it comes to intimacy and union with her beloved. And yet, there could be a sense where her garment was some sort of purity gown, was some sort of important symbol of separation. Perhaps we're meant to read this scene as one in which they are not yet married. It's hard to tell. But she follows this sort of inner questioning about her own garment with this follow-up, even stranger scene that she had previously bathed her feet. She says, how could I soil them again? This verse is a little fun to read the commentaries on. They all scramble a bit, trying to explain to you how it's possible in the purity cultures of Israel that her feet had been cleaned for an important ritual for the next day. She didn't want to soil them, but that's confusing because there's really no other context to suggest this. It could be just, in all honesty, the practicality of the lover saying, my feet were clean and I don't want to have to walk across the dirty floor to get the door. But whatever's going on here, Though the images are somewhat strange to our 21st century Western mindset, clearly the impulse of hesitation towards intimacy is quite universal. If you can stick with the Song of Songs, this is where the payoff really comes. There's something powerful about this moment in all relationships where one party in the relationship is pursuing, they're knocking, they're calling out from the door. There's a separation, a threshold that could be crossed, it could be sexual, it could be conversation, it could just be a date or a connecting moment in a day. And yet as one party is calling, the other party hesitates because of practical concerns, right? I put off my garment, why do I want to put it back on again? I bathed my feet, how could I soil them? Interestingly, in this particular passage, the Beloved does one of the more aggressive, persistent moves throughout the songs. For the most part, the beloved is pretty restrained, and yet here he's going to move towards intimacy. We're told that he put his hand to the latch. In the Hebrew, that is a really loaded and sort of confusing expression. It's possible he's either putting his hand through the window to open the latch. It's possible that the euphemisms here are that he is moving towards sexual intimacy with her, even though she's hesitating. And It's a really confusing verse. I hope to be the first to acknowledge Song of Songs is not always an easy read because the second half of verse four, if this move almost seems aggressive and out of character for the beloved and gives us cause for concern, like why is he so aggressively moving towards her even though she's moving slow? We're told that whatever this movement is that he does towards the lover, I mean, she loves him. And so we're told that her heart was thrilled within me, quite literally my body was stirred, right? This is the sense of desire has been kindled. Here's where the passage gets really strange. If he has reached his hand over the door to open the latch and she's thrilling at either the possibility of encounter with him or realizing that she really does want to be with him, we're told in verse 5, as she arose to open to my beloved and as she goes to put her hand on the door and there's all this myrrh imagery, which could again be sexual or could again just be the sensualness of creating a context of arousal and desire. We're told strangely in verse 6, she opened to her beloved, but her beloved had turned and gone. While I don't totally understand what's taking place in the Hebrew or how we're meant to picture this scene in some sort of vivid, imaginative way, what I can connect to in this verse is that moment, that moment where one party pursues the other, the other hesitates, has practical concern, but then the other party realizes, I am interested, I do want to be connected. They move back to pursue their beloved, and in that confusing split-second pause or many-moment pause, when they go to return the pursuit, they find that the beloved has gone. There's some really good commentary here from the rabbis in the Midrash that was reflecting on the nature of Israel's relationship with God. I find this interesting that they suggest this scene is depicting in very sexual terms, which is again the shocking thing about the Song of Songs, the pursuit that God has of Israel, that God presses up against the door of Israel's life, that God wants to be involved God wants to dwell among his people in the temple, in the tabernacle. He wants to dwell through the throne. He wants to make covenants with the people of Israel. 
and his presence to be with them in a never-ending way. And yet, yet Israel in her dilly-dallying, in her sense of hesitation, in the practical concerns, the garments that Israel needs to put on, the bathing of the feet that Israel needs to do, Israel paused. And even though God was persisting and pursuing, by the time Israel finally deemed themselves ready, God's presence had gone. There was a sense in which God was no longer there when Israel went looking for him. And so in this vulnerable moment of the relationship, we yet again are going to discover the lover going in a desperate track. She's going to take off to seek out for the beloved. And the songs give this beautiful sense to human relationships, and you can sense its relevance to our relationship with God too. When we, in our timing, go to expect this moment of intimacy, go to pursue God and discover that God's not there, we freak out and start looking high and low. I mean, we get desperate. We are searching the city, searching in all of its dangers and distractions, looking high and low for where God might be waiting for us. And yet, in our desperation, there's this self-pitying sense in which we say, oh, why aren't they here? Why weren't they available? Why didn't they just stay and stick around? And yet, here we are searching, and as it says at the end of verse 6, calling to him, but finding no answer. So I realize there's a sense where I may have lost you with this chapter. This is some of the harder reading that we'll try to do in this study, and I think in the scriptures in general. If you have just enough poetic imagination, track with me one further step. In verse 7, the scene changes once more, and this time it gets very disturbing. We're told in verse 7 that where before the watchman found her in a neutral sense, she asked her question of them and they gave no reply. Now we're told the watchman found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Whoa, what is happening here? You would have to ask as you're reading, what, what happened with these watchmen? I mean, the only hope we have in understanding this is some sort of symbolic reading. Clearly, the watchmen are here to represent something. And this, again, is where the early Jewish rabbis are helpful. The rabbis point out that the watchmen are the guardians over the city. There are those who are keeping watch. And so for the Jewish rabbis, this clearly mapped onto the religious leaders and the urban elites in Jerusalem that would have been taking place around the time of the prophets, which is possibly when the Song of Songs was completed or circulated or being read, and that these watchmen clearly represent those malicious intellectuals, upper-class elites who are using the people for their own advantage, and instead of allowing opportunity for relationship between God and his people to flourish, are going to beat and bruise the one seeking God and even taking away their veil, taking away the very garment of dignity that the woman was likely wearing because they believe they have something to protect in their watchmanship of the night. Now, I realize that's really allegorical and symbolic, and yet I think the interpretation and the move from the ancient world to our own could be made to suggest The watchmen seem to me to be any authority, any communal pressure that's set up to dictate or to coerce or to control the dynamics of the relationship between the lover and the beloved. And what the Song of Songs is saying vividly, even disturbingly, as we picture the scene in which a woman is running around the city in the dark of night looking for her beloved, desperate, not able to find him. The watchmen are going to be violent. We're told they beat and bruise her in addition to taking away her veil. I think, though it is a disturbing verse, I think the power of what the Song of Songs is suggesting here is that when we get desperate, when we become afraid in our search for intimacy, we become vulnerable to those guardians and authorities of our community who may or may not have our best interest at heart. So to just be really practical with this, time and time again, I have seen many situations where parents and close friends can be wonderful encouragers to the intimacy of a flourishing relationship. I worked with college students for a while, and 
uh, sometimes friendships and parents can really help a relationship just take off and flourish. But I've also equally seen, probably even more so, times when parents and friends or particularly religious leaders, religious authorities, can put so much pressure, can be so coercive and controlling when it comes to the relationship that they're connected to or that they feel some sort of entitlement in overseeing, that instead of encouraging that intimacy to flourish, they instead leave the person beaten and bruised in their search, in the desperation of the terrors of the night, right when they're starting to feel afraid. I also can't help but think, and this may strike closer to home for some, of the terrors that take place when watchmen, used in the symbolic sense, beat and bruise those who are deeply afraid in their intimate search for relationship. And so I have seen pastors and church leaders do incredible damage as they have attempted to guard their sense of the purity of God or the holiness of God or the right way to do marriage or the right way to do sex. I have equally seen small group leaders, uh, lay church leaders, really anyone can become a watchman who instead of actually protecting the relationship as they were intended to, turns emotionally violent in their disruption to this desperate moment where right when the person is feeling deeply paranoid, deeply afraid, deeply desperate, they become the mechanism of harm that perpetuates further abuse. Now, for as disturbing as verse 7 is, there's a bit of hopefulness in verse 8 that instead of really linger too long on some sort of literal explanation of how the woman now recovers, what did the beloved think of what the watchman did to her, the Song of Songs just sort of moves on to this verse 8 where once again, the lover is going to turn to the daughters of Jerusalem and she's going to say to them, if you find my beloved, tell him I am sick with love. I think this is a haunting summary to what's happening in the terrors of the night. At the core of our disruption, when it comes to relationships, we find this rootedness of fear. And I think these pictures, pictures of the night, pictures of the city, pictures of the watch, become these helpful interpretive frames where if you look back on your relationship, where was the night, the problem for the paranoia, for the agitation, for the desperation, when instead of trusting the love that you had, you got really anxious. You got really frantic in your approach. And you started swinging your arms left and right and you just couldn't settle down. Where was the city, the sense of the bustle and the distraction, this heightened measure of danger where all of these lurking temptations and possibilities were either waiting for you or waiting for the one you were looking for. And as you were searching high and low, you were looking in all the wrong places for what you actually needed, which was intimacy in your love. Where were the watch, those figures of authority and control who intervened and perhaps, perhaps in the way that they stepped in so forcefully to what you otherwise were in fact doing desperately or frantically in terror, instead of protecting you or guarding you or helping to facilitate your search back to your beloved, they instead beat and bruised you, and they took away your veil. The Song of Songs is starting to preach here. And I think there's a sense with both our human relationships and in our relationship with God, where if we're being honest, this is, a, this is an honest reckoning moment where we can just speak openly about the fact that each of us is vulnerable. Each of us is vulnerable on a purely physical level. Each of us is vulnerable every day to the night. To, to this reoccurring moment in which we become somewhat paranoid, somewhat anxious, somewhat disoriented in relationships that otherwise should have been secure. I think all of us are vulnerable to the distractions and dangers of the city, the sense in which we go to look in all the wrong places for what we're actually longing for, either with our spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, that that deep longing for connection, actual connection, actual intimacy, or on a more spiritual, existential plane for that deep longing that we actually need with God, longing that often can only take place not in the bustle and the busyness of the city, but in the quiet and the solitude 
of being alone with God. And there, even there in these terrors, we're invited to wonder, where have the watch been disrupting us? Where is there a sense where the pressures of religious leaders are actually causing more distractions and damage to your relationship with God than if you were actually free to return to that safety of the place of intimacy and connection that you typically meet God in? Where in your actual relationships, if you look out across your family, across friendships, across your jobs, are there actually people disrupting and distracting you? I mean, these, these people are not actually here for your benefit. You've turned to them because you're desperate. You see the need for them in the context of the community of your life. And yet in these moments of vulnerability, instead of helping you, they've actually been hurting you when it comes to your relationship with your spouse or with that person in your life. I find these to be quite big questions. In fact, this episode, this chapter is a wonderful invitation to examine the fears that are holding us back from intimacy in our life. If you're being honest with yourself, the challenge about terror is that often in a different context, the terror would seem far less threatening. And so I think the invitation in this episode is to take a step back and to reorient yourself to the relationship you find yourself in. Now, I realize for some of us, that seems like a superficial band-aid for the deeper wound that has been distorted and broken intimacy. In fact, I started with a marriage story intentionally because I know that for many of us, it isn't just one night of terror, but it's actually night after night where instead of this scene being the sort of intrusion into our otherwise normal sequence of connection and love, what happened in our marriage was this ongoing pattern where terror begot more terror and terror became the pattern of relating to the point that you couldn't trust who the other person was with you and you couldn't trust yourself. If that's the case, my heart breaks for you. And yet, I don't see any other way back to God, back to intimacy, than beginning to acknowledge the dangers that happen when we allow the terrors of the night to dictate the patterns of our relationship for us. I am not saying that you should go back to whatever the relationship was that probably caused you great grief and harm. But I do think as you look back on that relationship, you can see this scene, this scene of franticness, of misconnection, and of desperation played itself out over and over and over again. And while it became the pattern that dictated the pace of your relationship, this cannot be the pattern of what God longs to offer to you and what you will need moving forward in friendships, in relationship, in love. So I think other episodes are going to do their best to help reorient love. And it even is helpful here to go back and keep noting, I I don't have any answers for you when it comes to sex and the search for intimacy, but I do see the patterns as the Song of Songs is building out this theology, patterns of desire, patterns of beauty, patterns of fear that are going to ultimately be necessary to reflect upon and redirect and reorient if you're going to find your way back to the God of all love. So here is where in this chapter, in this context, Song of Songs chapter 3 is going to offer us one concluding alternative vision for love restored, love redeemed, love protected. I realize as I go to read this, particularly if any of you happen to be divorced, this image might feel painful. And yet, As I sit with this image, and as I hold the tenderness of your pain, I can't help but wonder, I mean, this is what the scriptures are here to do. They're here to give us a vision of what is possible in God. God is the vision that brings us back to something beyond our own broken human plane, pointing us to what God himself is trying to establish and offer to us. So here's where Song of Songs chapter 3 goes. This is after our first scene of terror in the night. It's going to say this in verse 6, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 11. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, 
with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its backs of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Get out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So here's our last passage. I realize we've been thick in the text this episode, but you gotta love it. I mean, there's just so much going on here. This scene is a scene that is taking us into the heart of Israel's story. And when we get into the heart of Israel's story, we get into the heart of our own story with God and our own redemption in Jesus Christ. Here's where the Song of Songs takes us. There in the wilderness, did you notice that verse 6? Up from the wilderness, coming like columns of smoke. What do you think that's meant to remind us of? other than the time of wandering when God's presence was sitting thick in the people of Israel, as if a column of smoke. In the wilderness, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and all the fragrant powders of a merchant, we find, in Old English, the litter of Solomon. (laughs) That's where it's just strange language. I wish our English translations did better. I've seen elsewhere it'd be called the palaquin of Solomon, which also does nothing for us. Basically, what you need to know is that the litter, the palaquin in Hebrew, is actually the royal bed, the royal chair or throne. If the king or queen was ever carried around, often streets were incredibly dirty, so it was beneath royalty to walk the streets of an ancient city. And so they would be carried, much like you've probably seen in movies, on this sort of chair or couch. And yet we're told that this couch, this royal throne, is the royal chair of Solomon. This is the first time in Song of Songs since the beginning of the book that we find Solomon again. And as commentators have noted, this is where some of the literalists get quite confused. So are we now talking about Solomon, the historical figure? I want to point out, this is where the symbol of Solomon, this is where the image of Solomon, the poetry of Solomon, is going to start to sing. What we're meant to see is that out of the wilderness comes this royal wedding bed of Solomon himself. This is the most luxurious, the most glorious, the most beautiful palaquin you could possibly imagine. It's coming with all of the weight and grandeur of Solomon. We're told around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. If you recall, David was known for having within his band 30 mighty men, and these were the most incredible warriors in the people of Israel. And yet here, around this wedding bed, this wedding ceremony litter, we discover not 30, but 60, 60 mighty men, the mightiest men of Israel. All of them are wearing swords. All of them are prepared for battle. I mean, are you tracking the image? Clearly, this occurrence, this processional, is coming in fully armed. It is ready for any threat, anything that's going to come against it. Literally, the swords are sitting at each of their sides. And did you notice, it's one of my favorite subtle literary points that speaks directly to this episode. We're told in verse 8 that all 60 of these mighty men, armed with their swords, are prepared against terror by night. These mighty men are here to deflect the terrors. The armed guard are here to protect what's about to take place, not just from the physical threats by day, but any terror that's going to come against this wedding by night. We're told in verse 9, King Solomon himself made this carriage. It's coming from the wood of Lebanon, the most incredible cedars from the most magnificent trees known in the ancient world. He made it with posts of silver. Its back is of gold. Its seat is of purple, which is, of course, the image for royalty. And its interior, did you catch? 
is inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. It's just meant to sing to you. And as it does, it's trying to tell you this chair. This is the chair of union. It's the chair of intimacy. This is a chair that represents all of the possibility of marriage. All of that lavish luxuriousness we talked about in chapter one, where when you think about it, a wedding is the grand spectacle of your life. There is no other moment when you're going to be so prioritized, so celebrated, when the whole community is going to come around you to uplift and honor this brand new union that is taking place. And it's because if you're tracking with the scriptures, this is intimacy. This is one of the great deep purposes of our existence. We were meant to become united and whole with God. And when marriage on earth takes place like it's meant to reflect in heaven, you're getting taste in sexual union through marriage of the intimacy we were intended to have with God, our maker. So this scene is telling us when Solomon's royal throne enters the scene and it's built with all of the lavish luxury and possibility of glory that it was intended to be with, we are called to go out to come and look upon King Solomon with the crown on which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, and the verse ends, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Clearly, you could get distracted at this point, asking yourself, so is it Solomon the Beloved? I mean, this is the verse where clearly it makes sense. Many have thought, maybe Solomon's the Beloved. Maybe the whole Song of Songs is a story about Solomon's love and life. But I think, I think if you're tracking here with the poetic nature of the songs, what we've just received, in contrast to the terrors of the night, is an image that's meant to remind us of the stronghold of love, the sacredness and security that God has been fostering in the marital covenant of love to one another. I pulled up just to have in front of me again, this is from the Book of Common Prayer, the vows that are given in a wedding ceremony where we declare to each other, I take you to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy law in the presence of God. I make this vow. The Song of Songs is taking the sacredness and solemnity, the all-reaching extent of that marriage vow, and it's painting it in glorious hues to remind you of two things. I think this is the best I've got for you here in our search for intimacy. If you want to taste on earth some of the greatest riches of God's creation, what you will need is a covenant ceremony of complete and utter bondedness to another person. That's what this scene is pointing to. The marriage ceremony is given to us as a sign. And yet, even as I say that, I know many of us, many of us have tried this. Many of us have sought what we thought would be sanctuary in a marriage covenant ceremony. Some of us are still longing out of our singleness and our celibacy for that kind of powerful expression, that luxuriousness and lavishness of the palaquin of Solomon that is surrounded by the mighty men. And I know you don't have that right now, but but track, track with the theology taking place here. Track all the way to the book of Ephesians when Paul is going to tell us, when it comes to the union of a man and his wife, what is really taking place is the sign of our need for union with Christ. So what God is really telling us here in this passage is that the only way you're going to be protected from the terrors of the night is if you find your security within the comfort of God's covenant to you. I realize that might feel ethereal, it might feel spiritual, but that's what it is. That's what's taking place here. The image is that when you picture the lavishness of Solomon on the day of his wedding and the joy of his heart, what you are meant to see through that too is the lavishness of God is in fact the sign of Christ himself. 
who on the day of our glorious reunion with him will host not some dour, serious worship event, but will host the greatest sign we have of covenantal celebration, that of a wedding feast. When you picture the best wedding you've ever been to, when you picture a royal wedding, when you picture Solomon's wedding in all of its glory, what you are seeing a glimpse of is the security and the commitment of God to you, established through Jesus Christ. There are terrors waiting for us in the night. In fact, you may be facing some of those terrors right now yourself, and yet, as I read the Song of Songs, I hear the song being sung over your very heart that the God of all love, the God of intimacy, the God of joy and delight, is the God who wants to extend to you the safety and security of his covenant love for you in Jesus Christ. May your marriage find its comfort in the commitment it made before God. May your marriage be surrounded by the 60 mighty men who are there to protect you from the terrors of the night. May your soul in its search for intimacy begin to realize that sex itself is never going to satisfy the true need of your heart. Sex will never protect you from the terrors of the night, but instead, sex is a sign pointing you to your deep need for God's reunion and restoration to your very soul offered to you in Jesus Christ. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.